Welcome backwards to Bodhi Speak. So, I would like to read today the card, which was not the card of the day, but it is the card for this podcast, which is Guidance. And the teaching of the card reads, The angelic figure with rainbow-colored wings on this card represents the guide that each of us carries within. Like the second figure in the background, we may sometimes be a little reluctant to trust this guide when it comes to us because we are so accustomed to taking our cues from the outside rather than from the inside. The truth of your own deepest being is trying to show you where to go right now. And when this card appears, it means you can trust the inner guidance you are being given. It speaks in whispers and sometimes we can hesitate, not knowing if we have understood rightly. But the indications are clear, and following the inner guide you will feel more whole, more integrated, as if you are moving outwards from the very center of your being. If you go with it, this beam of light will carry you exactly where you need to go. You have to look for guidance because you don't know where your inner guide is hidden inside you. You have to find the inner guide, and that's what I call your witness. That's what I call your dharma. That's what I call your intrinsic Buddha. You have to awaken that Buddha in your life and shut Waken that Buddha and your life will shower blessings, benediction. Your life will become so radiant with good, with godliness, more than you can possibly conceive. It is almost like light. Your room is dark. Just bring light in. Even a small candle will do and the whole darkness disappears. And once you have a candle, you know where the door is. You don't have to think about it. Where is the door? Only blind people think about where the door is. People who have eyes and the light is there. They don't think. Have you ever thought, where's the door? You simply get up and go out. You never give a single thought to where the door is. You don't start groping for the door or hitting your head against the wall. You simply see and there is not even a flicker of thought. You simply walk out. So it's funny that this is the card that I pulled for this podcast because a little bit of what I wanted to share inspiration for talking today was uh, why I started the podcast and you know, the motivation behind it. So one of the things that I love to do is to teach. Uh, my mother is a gender studies professor, politics at the University of Virginia. And growing up with her and growing up with actually a lot of phenomenal teachers through high school, through college, and being exposed to many different spiritual teachings many different spiritual teachers uh the current lineage i work with maestro manuel rufino taino elder the initiatic traditions rooted in shamanism and yoga and meditation nutrition esoteric mysticism and many other subjects beyond and above and below uh, i've had many many teachers and many a lot of things pass my way and you know I was talking with my wife, Ishelle, the other day, and I was saying, you know, you realize that 200 years ago, not even that long ago, less time than that, you would have had to go so far to hear the teachings of Rumi, of the Buddha, of Gandhi, of the Aboriginal people, of the Hunikuin, of the Yawanawa, the Wichole, the Navajo. You know, hear the teachings of the Inuit, of someone like Joseph Campbell, mythology. And this time and era that we're in, all of a sudden we have all of the teachings of all the traditions of thousands upon thousands of enlightened teachers and masters. And their work compartmentalized into video, audio, text retreat centers archaeological historical sites it's everywhere and it's all available to us regardless if we are one of the poorest people in the world or one of the most wealthy people in the world and you know when i was in bodh gaya the site of the buddha's enlightenment i was actually at a uh i stayed with a friend of mine his friend is sunil He's a great tour guide, Sunil Kumar. Check him out if you go to Bodh Gaya. This was about 10 years ago. On the back of his motorcycle, he took me all to the holy sites. 
took me up to the site where the Buddha spent many years fasting in a cave and became emaciated, super mystical, beautiful place where he is. There's just like candle up in this cave up in the mountain and the statue of this emaciated skeletal Buddha. It's so haunting and beautiful and powerful. He took me up there. And this amazing banyan tree is massive banyan tree uh, at the foothill. And Bodh Gaya is a pretty flat place, so it was kind of a unique spot. It also took me over to the location where the Buddha received rice milk from the village girl, which saved him from that emaciation and that uh, masochistic way of achieving enlightenment and brought him into a place of equanimity where he could you know, find the true teaching of the middle way. And I was with Sunil's family, and there was about nine of them. He was young. He was pretty young. He was probably, I think, 13 at the time. And with his mother, and there's about 10 of them in the family, however many, nine, 10. And they would all sleep on one bed. The bed was probably about 12 feet across. And they lived in a clay hut with dirt floors in a relatively, you know, rural kind of urban environment. A mix, you know, kind of hard to say because it's on the outskirts of the city, but had a feeling of a rural and an urban environment is the best way I could put it. And very poor family, but they had satellite TV. They all slept in one bed in a clay hut on dirt floors, but they had satellite TV somehow illegally rigged up and they're watching the, <laughs> the film Scary Movie. <laughs> it was bizarre, but they all had computers. You know, they all, I'm sorry, they all, they all had, you know, they all had access to computers. Like Sunil, is friends was friends with me on Facebook, I believe. I'm not sure. I haven't heard from him in a while, but you know, he had access to the internet cafe. And so, if one was so, you know, granted, he's living in you know the mecca of, of Buddhism in a certain level, Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha achieved enlightenment. But even if which and, and the Bodh Gaya is in the state of Bihar in India, a very poor, poor state of India, and if, you know, but you could be living in. Uh, the accessibility of technology doesn't really matter, you know, who you are. It's accessible. And if one is so inclined and paying attention, the accessibility to all of these teachings, things that you would have had no other way of ever coming in contact with are there. It's just what a magnificent time to be alive if one is paying attention and one is awake and seeking. And as... Maestro Manuel Rufino's teacher, Maestro Domingo Diaz Porto, who's still alive in his 90s, living in Venezuela, said, you know, at the, eight, at the age of Aquarius, what they say is, the buffet is open. <laughs> Meaning, we have all the choices from all the traditions, all the medicines, all the practices, all the mantras, all the teachers, all the techniques, all the pranayama, everything the diets, the whole situation. It's just what do you, what route do you want to go? You don't have to be confined to the Christian way, to the, you know, limitation of your local cultural circuit, you could say. You can go any direction. And so one thing that I was listening to yesterday and, and listening to this book by Robert Thurman uh, for those of you who don't know, Robert Thurman is a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, although he's American. I believe he was the first ordained Tibetan monk from America. And he became friends with the Dalai Lama, and he was 23, and the Dalai Lama was, I think, 29. And they've been close friends ever since. He disrobed after several years, and he became a professor at Columbia. He married... Timothy Leary's ex-wife, they were living together up in Millbrook, who was a Swedish model, I believe, and they gave birth to his daughter, Uma, who we all know is Uma Thurman from, you know, the Quentin Tarantino movies. And anyway, uh, so Robert Thurman, phenomenal speaker, profound... Um, depth of insight into the tradition both through practice and intellectual scholarship and he has a book many books but one that spoken to me more deeply perhaps than any other infinite life awakening to the bliss within it's just impacted me you know and i've studied tibetan buddhism in many ways for a long time i've been to india twice specifically with the intention of going into buddhism 
the first time I went for a year to India, Nepal, and Bhutan. The second time I only went for a week. The second time was staying at a monastery in South India as guests because the community Golden Drum that I'm a part of hosted several Tibetan monks during that time. And they invited us over for an inauguration of their debate hall by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And so we went to a week worth of talks by different leaders in the, their tradition, the Gayluk tradition, and the Dalai Lama gave many talks. And we were pre- I was pretty close to the Dalai Lama. At one point, he was about like 15 feet away from me or so, which was pretty amazing just to be you know, in the presence of someone like that, even if you're not necessarily directly interacting, just to be in the field, the vibrational field of the person. And as I've been listening to this book, I was reflecting about, you know, I was like, man, I've been in the presence of the Sakya Rinpoche. I've been met the Karmapa, the Kagyu tradition twice. I've been in the presence of the Dalai Lama now, you know, at the, that one week alone, three or four times. And then before that, a couple of years back in New York City. And then the Nyingma Rinpoche, I don't remember specifically where, but he, I believe maybe at the same... There was a funeral that I went to in Kathmandu in Nepal where the Sakya Rinpoche was there. And I believe that Nyingma Rinpoche was there. I was thinking about, you know, the profundity of just being in the, having had the opportunity to be in the presence of all four of the masters of these Tibetan Buddhist schools. And, you know, Robert Thurman's book is just so powerful. It It's, you know, I lived with two Tibetan families when I was there. I traveled through Bhutan, all these places. I never actually got super into Tibetan Buddhism. It always felt very difficult in a lot of ways to penetrate due to the esoteric and mystical and figurative depth of language. I was more drawn towards Zen and Sn Goenka's Vipassana and just my own understanding of their practice and experience. Although teachers like Chognam Trungpa and Pema Chodron of the Tibetan tradition spoke very deeply to me, but at the same time, those teachers were offering very much like the Tibetan tradition through a Western perspective and in a lot of ways you know Chognam Trungpa is kind of a renegade (laughs) deeply so getting drunk and crashing into a joke shop and there's a funny photo of him holding a gun up to his head I'm not really sure what's going on he's another one of him giving the middle finger to the camera it's definitely a Hayoka kind of renegade character (laughs) you know so he's wore a suit he's not necessarily always like the perfect Um, if you want to get into like the depth of the historical Tibetan tradition on, at least from my limited understanding of of the, of the culture and tradition, but, uh, Robert Thurman, I feel has really summed it up and spoken about it in a way that impacts, uh, the, the, the listener or the reader in a way that's like, whoa, this, the you know, the complexity, but also the depth and the simplicity at the same time, because there is the simplicity to the practice that gets through really, really beautifully. And so I just highly would recommend listening to him. And if to get more perhaps into the intricacies of the actual Tibetan tradition, The Jewel Tree of Tibet by Robert Thurman, a different book, is phenomenal. Um, been listening to these on Audible. And the book Infinite Life, I feel... You know, there's one thing that he shared about one of the great generosities, like of all the generous acts you do, one of the greatest acts of generosity is to share the Dharma. It's like that is like, you know, worth like the merit that one accumulates through that, you know, and what that offers to you through your journey through infinite life and in the eternal moment is uh, un, you know, fathomable. And coming back also to Chognam Trungpa. Chognam Trungpa was known for having his students give Dharma talks even before they were really ready. And the idea behind that is like exactly what this card I pulled. You know, I was going to talk about this before I pulled the card and the card just kind of affirmed it, which is always a beautiful revelation of, or rather a affirmation. Although from the outside, ironically telling me to look inside. So the idea behind this is that, you know, we might not think we're ready for something, but then once we're placed into the role, the force of what's needed to move the obstacle 
arises. So we oftentimes need that stimulus pressure to rise up to the call of the occasion. And sometimes we find profound things come out of us when suddenly we're asked to share. And that's more so than we ever could have dreamed. And that was sort of the intention behind this podcast is is what this card is talking about. That, you know, learning to come into a place of like the inner Buddha within, the inner Dharma, the inner wisdom, the wisdom of your own heart. And this is my expression of that. Like, okay, I'm just going to share what's coming through me, what's coming out of me. And you know, many times in my life, I look at myself and I, I see oh, a whole field of negative emotions or negative thoughts or, you know, arrogant or uh, selfish actions. Like everybody, I don't think there's anybody that doesn't come in contact with that. And simultaneously, what I feel is that just because we come in contact with this aspect of ourselves, it doesn't mean that like there's something necessarily wrong. It doesn't mean that there isn't there's something impure about us. It just means that the path is challenging and that we have to exercise a lot of mindfulness and attention to how we are proceeding through life, whether it is are we on automatic or are we, you know, facing these challenges within ourselves, these, you know, sankaras, these negative qualities or these habitual patterns that keep us locked in something? Are we utilizing these things as a way to step more into a place of compassion and selflessness, service, wisdom, freedom? How are we utilizing what is in front of us and to what ends and what means is it being constructed? So the meditation I really think here is is how can we learn to just trust more what's happening from what, what our heart is calling us, what's coming from inside and when we begin to tune into that place there is an innate guidance that comes through we've been conditioned and manipulated and deceived by political institutions religious authorities family society social interactions consumer culture to constantly tell us that you are not enough, you don't have enough, you'll never be good enough. In order for you to be complete, because you're incomplete, there's something wrong with you, you're impure, you're a sinner, you don't know anything, you're ignorant. All these things we've been just taught and put down constantly, incessantly, by those who hold power. Why? Because it creates a dependency. It creates a chronic insecurity. It creates a uh, distraction from this inner guidance from within us. And I'm a big proponent of this idea that there isn't like, you know, a global conspiracy where there's like the people that have all the power and they're just like partying really hard and just like mocking all of us. If anything, those people are suffering on some level even more because they're consumed in that dimension of consciousness of desiring to be oppress themselves over others it'd be and my my idea is that it'd be better to be poor not having much but caring for others and a loving simple person rather than it would be to be like a super empowered you know wealthy um selfish person who has a lot of like quote-unquote material external freedom um that's kind of how i feel about the situation based off of my understanding of the teachings is that you know the true liberation is something within ourselves it's not a 
possessing. It's coming back to this idea of, of being able to be generous, of giving, having something to share. You know, something along the lines of like, abundance is not something that is created, but something that's realized and then shared with others. Stepping into that place of like, no, they're like the, the, what is within me can just spill out in a way that I don't need to come from a place of possessiveness or protection of something or guarding, putting up walls and barriers. And obviously this comes to right action because there is a moment where we do need to put up walls and barriers and protect ourselves. You know, if someone comes to mug you, you don't just go, yes, here you go, there's everything. You know, I mean, you run away. <laughs> or, or, you know, use your kung fu magic to defend yourself within reason without, you know, compassionately, compassionate action of kung fu. <laughs> there is a reason that kung fu is a Buddhist practice. So, understanding... How we can trust the power and the wisdom and the guide within us, even when we're reluctant to trust it. Because we're so accustomed to taking our cues from the outside. This is a very important thing, meditation, that we have to do if you think about the level of distraction that we are bombarded with. The environment is constantly trying to distract you. It wants to pull you out. Not out of like a, a malicious thing all the time. Sometimes it's just this. It, sometimes people just want attention. They want you to pay attention to them. And, you know, there's this idea of like how, what's, what's the conduct of ourselves? Are we talking just to talk? Are we doing frivolous things just to avoid looking at ourselves? How much of who we are is constructed on just avoiding what is inside of us? I remember my Sherman Well was talking one time about vision quests, and he said there's a moment where you're sitting there and you just have to look at it and ask, how deep does this pain go? How much of what we have constructed as ourselves is just an avoidance of, of the pain that we're holding inside? You know, and this is the thing of like, why is that pain there? What is out of alignment within us? How come we are not moving from that inner guide, that inner depth in a way that our life becomes so radiant with good, with godliness, more than we can see, that we become almost like light, spilling lightness, light out into a room of darkness. Why have we become fragmented from that alienated, depressed, anxious, addicted, angry, confused, frustrated, craving this, having generating aversion towards that? What is the way to tune in and listen to that space within ourselves. So this is in a lot of ways like the medicine of COVID. And I'm going to keep coming back to this probably every talk because it's just something so relevant because ordinarily, you know, for a long time I was going out with Ishel, uh, for those of you who know me and know about some of the work that we do with meditation and yoga and music and things like that uh and basically sharing what i'm sharing now but to people in person and offering that but here we are you know now i'm doing it through a microphone and and this is like the medicine of covid on some level that we are now being asked to pay more attention to what's happening perhaps inside of ourselves now more than ever and to look at how the actions that we have taken individually based off of what's happening inside of us because now our focus is you know way much more uh, digging into that than ever before how much of our actions 
coming from that place of perhaps fragmentation and pain, like most many people in the world, has led to the situation that humanity finds itself in. And there's many positive things happening in the world, so it's not like immediately like you think of something negative. But there is, a, I mean, there is obviously a certain level of sickness, of selfishness, of greed, of overconsumption, addiction, violence. All, list goes on and on and on of what is happening. This parasite of of the mind that human beings have found themselves in. And this is our opportunity now to look at ourselves and say, where was it that we were coming from? Everything has been interrupted. We interrupt this message. Brought to you. This is our moment to look at ourselves really soberly and go, okay, how deep does this pain go? What is my inner guide telling me? What is the direction that I need to move in? Because no one is perfect. And on some level, I'm sure everyone was out of alignment with something. As above, so below. There was probably an, an, a misalignment occurring on all levels for everybody that we needed to shift out of. And for some more so than others. So this is a really important meditation right now for us to understand who we are really deeply outside of distraction, outside of desire, outside of aversion, outside of fear, outside of insecurity, outside of neurosis, and to look who we really are on the depth of the inside and where it is that we need to go to bring out that light that we really are. Eckhart Tolle had a good saying one time he said it's as if you are a light of ray from the sun that has forgotten where it came from that light of ray is not any way shape or form disconnected from the sun it's just on some level farther away from it and Alan Watts said something like human beings didn't come weren't born on earth they were born out of the earth like an apple tree, apples, a human, or earth, planet, peoples, this kind of thing. You're the universe peoples. You're like a wave in the ocean. So how to tune into this inner guidance, how to connect to this inner guidance, is to come into a place where you can get to that stillness and the quietness. This is the purpose of like the vision quest. or The vision quest in specifically is, is in essence this card of guidance what is it that wants to come and be born out of us how do we drop the habitual patterns that have been pulling us in one direction or the other a lot of times we have to just ask questions without providing answers. We just have to ask questions and listen to the stillness that arises within us. And not necessarily be afraid of the spaciousness. And this is something that Pema Chodron talks about with being a dharmic person means that you are someone that is not necessarily addicted to just filling the space and the discomfort that arises when the space is not filled through social interaction, through thought, through activity, just being able to just be with the spaciousness of what is. And in that spaciousness, something really powerful has the opportunity to arise. That's the inner guidance this card is talking about. And what I think is really important to come back to with this idea of what Robert Thurman is talking about, the infinite life. The premise here is that 
in the span of an infinite world, you have been born more times than you can imagine. Everyone has been your husband, your wife, your lover, your worst enemy, your stranger, your mail person, your delivery person, your neighbor, your boss, your child. We've all been every role for each other an infinite amount of times because the infinity of life is just exactly that. It goes on forever. The idea is that something cannot come out of nothing. If there was nothing, there would only be nothing, and the only way there would be nothing is that there was a something there to support it, in which case there could not be a nothing because there was a something. Feel free to do more thought experiments on the deconstruction of nihilism. <laughs> That's about as in-depth as I'm going to get into that because I'm more interested these days in the heart rather than the mind, although the mind is a wonderful tool for guiding ourselves into the heart when applied consciously and in the right method, yana yoga, using knowledge to turn it back in on itself to connect to the presence within ourselves. And this idea that we are here forever, there is an evolutionary impulse to the universe. We all started in this condensed thing called the Big Bang, and material form has since arisen out of that with more complex organisms on some level and a constant stream of mind has been there and through right action or in unwise action we have found ourselves in the circumstances that we have found ourselves in and this evolutionary impulse is something that when we become fully aware of that there is no independent separate self that we are a interdependent connected self although if we were to look deep enough Consistently enough, you'd find this self doesn't really exist. It's changing constantly. There is a changing that's occurring to who and what we are. The more that I've looked and the more journeys of things that I've been on and the more transitional periods I've gone on and practices I've dived into, the more the what seems to just consistently be there is a witnessing presence. Over time, all thoughts, memories, feelings, emotions, impressions, habits will erode and be destroyed along eventually with the physical form itself. But what we're getting at here is that there is an eternal witnessing presence we can call mind. When I was at the Tibetan monastery, they actually did not necessarily, they didn't differentiate in the Tibetan tradition according to one of the monks I was speaking with between the heart and the mind. The mind is what cons is, is an interconnected, interwoven presence that you know, moves through you and everything else. It's not necessarily something that's divisible, kind of like the idea of the great spirit within Native American culture, something like that, or the Tao. And this idea of this stream, so once we become aware of this and this interconnectivity, and the idea is, oh, well, once we begin to loosen this fixed structure of who we are, who we think we are, rather, then joy and bliss and love and connection and freedom begin to arise spontaneously on their own. And naturally, compassion arises because you realize that what you're looking at, it, the separation we're perceiving is an illusion between ourselves and others, animals, plants, people objects, everything. The, the separation is an illusion on the deepest form. We're all completely interwoven and connected. And so the importance of compassion here is not just like a concept, but something to, to embed and drill into the fundamental structure of your being in every moment, every action, every thought, every feeling, every nook and cranny that we can. Compassionate wisdom needs to arise. How are we thinking about others? How are we acting towards others? How are we speaking about towards others? How are we picturing others? How, what, what kind of impressions are we bringing into this infinite mind of ours? Because 
what where is this stream headed where are we headed on this river we on a certain sense can take some degree of control of the rudder which is in our own mental emotional internal framework and we can dictate where it is that that is going to take us on this road that is infinite and it can turn into an infinite hell or it could turn into an infinite heaven as the great masters of the traditions offer us and perhaps maybe you've experienced glimpses of that through practices or you know plant medicine or just having giving birth or almost dying or loving someone or devotion all kinds of tools and methods music art experiences in nature whatever it is that brought you to that place the idea that there is something transcendent that's not separate from us it's not something out there it's something that we're interwoven with but we we get it all dirty make it very smoky mirror out of it how can we clean that mirror clean our nervous system open ourselves to that transcendent reality and experience the joy the bliss and the freedom and flow of being in that place and the importance according to the tibetan tradition is recognizing the impermanence and the illusionary aspect of self of so much of it being a concept but also the impermanence of our thoughts our feelings our actions the sensations our memories our you know our fears and our cravings all these things are very impermanent so they're not really who we are even the physical form it changes what what is it that is there that remains oh it's this omnipotent impenetrable indestructible presence so connect to that be in harmony with that how compassion through the heart realizing to be out of harmony out of the tao out of alignment to be tuned to a denser frequency of vibration there's so much suffering and misery and unhappiness that comes and dissatisfaction and agony that comes from being in that place you stuck tension anxiety anger generating hatred towards others violence towards others acting on that internal place jealousy possessiveness institutionalizing that i mean just think about that right not only do i hate those people i'm going to hate them so much that i'm going to create an institution that enforces that hatred on a larger societal level so that others so that as many people that i of that category that i hate have to be inflicted by this violence i mean think about the insanity of this kind of thing once we realize the impermanability and fallacy of a separate separate individual self this is psychosis yet this is mainstream material and even in some respects non-material cultures too because this this but non-material at least in the sense of like a conceptual ideology you know you know there there can be cultures that embrace like for instance plant medicine that, that are violent towards one another i mean there's plenty of examples of that through history they're experiencing something in the spirit world but there's still like there's still a deep divisionary thing here but to step into this place of non of of, of recognizing that our perspective is flawed it's incorrect this is the illusion that we're missing something here that who we are is not what we actually are and who they are is not exa- exactly who they are <laughs> it's more like instead of saying like there's jerry looking at bob you could say it's the universe looking at itself through what 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 <laughs> you know one thing that one version of itself says jerry one version says bob so it's kind of a funny thing it's i like to look at if my two fingers on my hand created little names for themselves and talk to each other that might be a good way for us to look at it that's that's the what we're trying to get at here so when we tap into that place naturally what arises is compassion but at the same time you know we have a transcendent experience right this is why i was like oh everyone needs to take lsd and it'll save the world because we'll realize we're all one and we'll have compassion and love everyone but the, well, the issue is that you know the experience fades whatever happens whatever transcendental experience we have fades or practice has fades and we find ourselves caught in these habits that make us suffer and then inflict suffering upon others and this is the importance of the perspective i think that comes from the tradition that you know robert thurman in his book it spells out so beautifully why i recommend reading his book or listening to it on audible is that this perspective that 
everything that's generated within our mind stream is is leading us into something that leads into something else that keeps going that what what happens and arises within us is important and not and I what I what I mean by that is like you know anger is going to arise within you even if you're the most happy, peaceful person, someone once asked the Dalai Lama, do you ever, you know, do something like violent or angry, you regret? And he goes, oh, like, you know, sometimes I smack a mosquito and I feel bad about that. <laughs> but the reality is, is like this. So, you know, I'm, this arises in all of us on some level. But the question is then, like, what do we do with it? You know, that's why we say watch your thoughts because your thoughts become your ideas about things your ideas about things become your habitual mode of being your habitual mode of being translates into actions your action translates into who you are i completely butchered that quote but the, <laughs> the idea of what it's what i'm trying to get at and what the original quote gets at i think it comes across there which is what's happening inside of us in the most fundamental arising moment is crucially important and not just from like this idea of like i want to be enlightened so i need to make sure that i am happy and saying i love everybody even if everyone is horrible it's much more than that it's so much more important that we go out and we act we take action and this is what is said in the gita in the bhagavad gita with krishna coming to arjuna i'm sorry arjuna you know you have to fight you have to fight you have to go out and you have to put yourself in the muck of it all and deal with it. Even though we get it, it's your family against your family. It's the universe against itself. What a painful thing it is to realize that we have to deal with that. The universe feeding on itself. That's a monstrosity, that realization. And that we have to participate in it. You know, and there's different ways of participating in it. Like the Jains of India would brush the, everywhere they step so they wouldn't step on an insect, so they wouldn't generate any negative karma whatsoever. I think that's a little extreme, but I, you know, like there's there's different ways. Like, you know, the Native American perspective is like that we are participating in the suffering of the world more so which is why things like eating meat and uh you know attacking the enemy on some level was on a certain degree socially acceptable within those cultures but at the same time the the, the level of like understanding of this interconnectivity and the importance and the medicine of the heart was by no means lost on these people from you know not just the highest but also the people the most simple people of the culture it's embedded into the culture it was you know these are enlightened cultures on on a certain level yet they also incorporated you know violent acts towards animals and you know other tribes and that's a very fascinating thing to reflect upon and there's a lot of you know there's mythology to support this at the same time there's a very amazing story which i'm going to share probably in the next podcast about a uh talking buffalo that's chased off, that has his family chased off the cliff and it captures the tribal um, chief's daughter. Joseph Campbell tells the story. It's phenomenal from the Blackfoot tribe. Um, and it explains mythology as the idea of like, yeah, it's, you know, in the presence of eternity, forms changing, forms dying is not tragic as it sounds. In the Gita, it says, only the learned, the learned, learned have neither, grieve neither for the living nor the dead. The learned grieve neither for the living nor the dead. They've come to the place beyond the pairs of opposites to see past the game of it all where they can step into a place of, yeah, you know, it sucks, it's suffer there's suffering, but this is how it is. And Robert Thurman in the book was talking about how Ram Das went to Maharaji, his teacher, and said about the violence occurring, I believe, with the Pakistanis in, the, in Bangladesh and at the time in India. And uh, Maharaji goes, yeah, it's all perfect. And Ram Das says, okay, fine, but it's, you know, it stinks. It said something like that, you know, with a lot of like, yeah, like it stinks, like, you know. 
And and Robert Thurman says, I love that because, you know, what you have is this experience of non-duality, the perfection of it all, like the unity, like, yeah, God, you know, God is, God is a beautiful thing, but there's so much pain in it. And this is the thing is like the, Ram Das is providing the pain while Maharaji is providing the beauty, this thing of like, you know, yeah, it's perfect, but God bless me, this sucks, you know, like this hurts. How You can't deny that from a human level of the heart. Otherwise, you're too cold and just, you know, abstract philosophical about something. So, this is where we come into the place of compassion being a practice to counter the habit of illusion that our mind generates about how we perceive separation in the world. And compassion becomes a tool and a method for opening the heart which is how we transform consciousness is by opening the heart that's in there's a beautiful video coming again to joseph campbell who i love obviously about the kundalini chakra system and how all the transformation to get from one level to the next comes through the heart it's a purification of the heart you know inner investigation of the heart space that's where everything is transformed that's where we reach higher levels of awareness vibration and understanding and consciousness is the awakening and transformation and the work on the heart and so compassion becomes this wonderful tool for how to act in the world and participate in the world and how to and also compassionate action compassionate wisdom action guiding us in a way where we can approach the circumstances that arise externally and internally from a place of you know as i said wisdom wisdom coming to wisdom you know where is this going to lead what is the what is going to unfold from this place is this going to lead me further into violence degradation insanity <laughs> anger division separation isolation alienation greed selfishness or is this going to bring me into a place of joy creativity inspiration love guidance support trust empathy compassion unity so this constant meditation about compassion the word should ring through your head a thousand times through the day about compassionate action and it needs but it's it's a thing that needs to be separated or taken beyond rather the conceptualization it needs to be a medicine that the heart feeds off of and in the Tao Tai Ching it says have compassion for yourself and redeem all beings have compassion for yourself and you will redeem all beings that is a powerful statement I don't think that that could be a more powerful thing to reflect upon. Redemption for the human world comes on compassion for myself. Compassion for everybody, even for Hitler. Even for Donald Trump. <laughs> even for that guy who stole five bucks from me when I was in fourth grade. That guy. <laughs> How can I use everything around me externally, internally as a method for awakening into a more compassionate, open, awakened heart space? Even the person that mocks me for saying this. Oh, Jerry, like you know something. <laughs> That's fine. I'm not, you know, coming. This is a practice. And, and also recognizing, you know, what I think, you know, we come across certain moments in life where we're met with a choice and it's a huge choice. Do we go to that school or this school? Do we marry that woman or that woman? Do we divorce or not get divorced, have kids or not have kids? Do we pull the trigger or not pull the trigger? A trigger of what? I don't know. Make up your mind. It could be the trigger to kill someone. It could be the trigger to save someone. Do we, you know, all these things, these, these monumental, cinematic, epic choices in life that even the most boring person has to make at least a few of them in life. And they stand out because it's like, oh, that's a life-changing choice. But what I think is being offered here from this tradition is every thought, 
every emotion, every interaction is a life-changing choice. We reap what we sow, and you don't realize how deep it goes. But you speak to these Tibetan initiatic, shamanic, native elders, and they'll tell you like, oh, like you just don't know how deep this pain goes. <laughs> you don't know how deep this realization goes, this interconnectivity goes. Your your every thought, you meditate a negativity towards someone, the implications of what occurs. And maybe, you know, there's been different interpretations of this. Is it like a mystical thing, like something crazy happens then, like voodoo? I don't know. I'm sure there's been things like that have happened. The universe is stranger than I could ever comprehend. But then there's also moments where all you're, what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for inner affliction, inner violence, inner anger that will carry with you to the next lifetime. And how does that unfold into the externalization of the reality for you? It's a difficult thing to comprehend, but what the Tibetan masters are telling us is that with enough negativity, you can find yourself in situations just like, how did I get here? And there's not, it's not like because you're a bad person. It's not ethical. It's just the way things are that like we reap what we sow. You eat terrible food, you will get sick. So what they're saying is awaken to what you are feeding yourself with. Awaken to what's happening inside of you. How deep is the pain going? How much compassion and patience and presence and peace can we begin to cultivate as a practice from the very beginning to lead us more deeply into that bliss that all these traditions are talking about? That unification where, you know, and what I liked a lot about what Robert Thurman was talking about was he says there's always going to be a you. This idea of you got to annihilate the ego is a myth. It's not something you can do because to do that, you'd have to become nothing. You can't just become nothing. There's always something. Even if like the highest vibrational, interdimensional, you know, ayahuasca entity thing that is super compassionate bodhisattva level just fragments of light it's still something there's always something present <laughs> so and even it you know then and a certain level this idea of, of buddhism is so fascinating too if you really look at it because it's, it's people say like it's an atheistic religion you know it's based there's a nihilism to it on some level right where it's this idea of like they're going into the void of emptiness, of no self. There's something about it that touches on the atheistic, nihilistic level, which is why I think a lot of people gravitate towards it in the Western world in some respects. If, you know, you have an experience of transcendence, but at the same time, like, okay, like that idea of like a guy up there with a beard and, and white robes it just sounds kind of, you know, a little, uh. <laughs> but the idea of like the void, okay, I can get with that. <laughs> But the, but the thing here is to understand that once we come in, you know, let's say we come into that same place Siddhartha Gautama came into 2,500 years ago of like this extinguishing of nirvana, the cessation of suffering in between craving and aversion, middle way, equanimity, peace, and this kind of thing. Once we're in that place, it's not a numbness. It's not an escape from this world. And that's something I think that's really important to really meditate on is that it's not an escape. That's not what's being taught. It sounds like that though, right? You, the void, emptiness, no self. It sounds like, oh, that sounds like going to sleep. I don't have to be there anymore. I don't have to do anything. No responsibility. I don't have to talk to anybody. My neuroses are gone. I'm just gone. There's nothing left. There's just a blankness. And, you know, it's empty, no self, the void. But that's not what they're getting at. What they're getting at is that if anything, there's a just a larger awareness of oneself 
that can't be contained. And if that occurs, then there is, if anything, only more responsibility and more desire to help. Because if anything, you're going to feel more. You can't block out the suffering of the world anymore. You can only bear witness to it with unbearable compassion. And to, to actually be in a place of compassion, actually be open where you're actually feeling, because it's compassion to suffer with. It means you're actually, it's a feeling. You're in it. It's not a conceptualization. It's something that's happening in the heart. You're feeling the suffering of others. And when you're in that place, you have to act. How can you not act? And this, you know, like for instance, if a child is about to fall down out of a chair and kill itself and hit its head off of a high stool or something, you just grab it. It's just, oh my god, you! It, it's it's so snap. It's instinctually compassionate. You know, there's less there's less of a meditation that needs to occur. It's more instinctual. But the, it's coming out of that same place. of this thing, like, no, the thing is going to hurt itself. I have to act. I have to act. And, and yeah, we know that, like, eventually this infant will grow up and die. And you can't fundamentally save it because everything will die. But, like, at that moment, what the right action is from a compassionate place is to save it and protect it. And even the most nihilistic of thinkers, pessimistic, perhaps, Schopenhauer, philosopher... recognize that there was a moment when you know someone saved themselves saved someone else in a situation you know life or death you know instant had to make a decision and they died themselves saving someone else how does that work and you know schopenhauer said because compassion because there's just a simple recognition that you and the other somehow are one this is coming from a very atheistic pessimistic philosopher even he had to like draw on the same conclusion that tibetans came to with this idea of like there's just a recognition that, like, if you and the other are one, you're going to act in the benefit of the other. You're going to act from that place of caring for the other. So take responsibility and care for people and care for yourself and care for others. You know, and it does start with yourself first. If you can't take care of yourself, if you can't, if you can't first manage your own thoughts and your own emotions, your own habits, your own behaviors, your own tendencies, your own character, then how can you do so for others? And at the same time, to contradict myself, because all these teachings are constantly paradoxes, paradoxes wrapped up in a mystery, is that there's a moment where to transcend those certain aspects of yourself, you can only do it by caring for others. If you've ever been in certain situations you know that the thing that got you out of it was essentially a boost of adrenaline because you cared for someone this we're coming back to this idea of, of like saving someone of saving something you drop your preoccupation with your egoic self self-preservation to open yourself out of love for someone else this is an eternal conversation. <laughs> I have my alarm going off right now because I have a responsibility to move forward in my life in a different way to take care of something else I have to do with myself. <laughs> so I have to end this podcast. <laughs> and this is the, the medicine of, uh, of the Dharma. And the depth of it is infinite. Caring for others, caring for others, caring for others. It cannot be overemphasized. And do what you can in your capacity, you know. Inch by inch is better than making massive leaps. Massive leaps have massive residual backlashes. Inch by inch, you might go back a little bit, but that was just a little bit. Just keep going forward. So this is to be continued. This is just a eternal process that we're in here. 
wish you a lot of peace, a lot of harmony, a lot of love. To master and overcome your struggles, to discipline, perseverance, deep caring, compassion for yourself and others. Keep fighting through the blockages and the illusions. May you find happiness and peace. Hush, hush.